Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Welcome to the Casting Across Fly Fishing Podcast. I'm Matthew of castingacross.com, where I explore the quarry and culture of fly fishing. This is the 208th episode of the podcast, so if that's the number that you were looking for, you are in the precise place that you need to be. And today we're going to talk about the last seven years. Think back, what were you doing in November of 2015? I honestly can't remember, but for one one small thing. But seven years, it's a long time, and it's also not a long time. Uh, if you measure it in uh, in digital uh, moments, it's a long time because uh, the digital lifespan of anything is very, very short. But if you measure it based on history or even your own life, it might not be that long. For me, the last seven years, a lot of things have happened. Uh, I've moved a few times. I've taken a few different jobs. I've had a few new children. But the one thing that has been constant and the one thing that has been consistent is casting across. And back in the summertime of 2015, uh, I decided I wanted to have a creative outlet for some writing. I wanted to be able to write. I wanted to be able to engage. And my uh, mind was going back and forth between two things that I absolutely love that were not part of my vocational life. One was barbecue. And I still love barbecue. And I want to write about it. But uh, I chose to write about fly fishing. And that's where casting across came from. The desire to stay in the fly fishing industry after I had uh, spent time working at a fly shop. I had sold fly rods for a few years. I had done some casting instruction, some guiding, and I had uh, directed a youth camp for fly fishing. But in my kind of most recent stage of life, I had got out of being part of the quote unquote industry. Now, real quick, before I circle back to that, I don't see that as a negative word. I know people throw that around a lot, but you could say culture, you could say community. 
I don't know exactly the best way to say it. it. In my mind, community is a broader circle than industry. Industry is anybody who's contributing something as a commodity. And that might be as insignificant as a website and a podcast, or it might be uh, you know, one of the premier brands in fly fishing. So for, for all intents and purposes, industry would be people who are, who are contributing something. Community would be all those who contribute and consume. Uh, so that's just my my quick attempt at a glossary for those terms. Anyway, uh, I enjoy being in the the industry after doing a bunch of those different jobs, primarily because of the people, and uh, that's going to be one of the themes for today's uh, podcast. That I'll get to here in a moment. So, Casting Across was launched in November of two thousand and fifteen. Actually, if we want to be uh, precise, the very end of October of two thousand fifteen, with three articles, and I would. I would suggest go and read those articles. If you go down on the right-hand side, if you're on a desktop, or on the very bottom, if you are on a phone, uh, to castingacross.com, you can read those three articles. I think they still stand up, and and one is about gear, uh, one is about a fishing experience, and one is humor. And so it's like exactly the still the same thing that I'm doing uh, seven years later, and they're great representations of of what uh, I still write about. And I think I have uh, retooled those articles, but that's neither here or there. But three articles a week for the last seven years, it's been a consistent part of my life. I've only traveled internationally a few times such that I've had to like pre-roll my uh, my content for more than uh, three or, or four days. And uh, otherwise, I've been at the computer or in front of the microphone for every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday in some way, shape, or form over the last seven years. And it has been phenomenal. I have truly enjoyed it. I really like where things are now. I have some plans for the future, but uh, I'm not going to touch on that too much today. What I want to talk about is some of the things that I have gathered over the last seven years. And again, this isn't to be the you know Matthew show, although I guess I'm the one that talks on the show. Uh, but these are things that hopefully you can think about and then maybe do something with. So like I always say, I like uh, casting across, especially the podcast, to be a springboard. It launches you to the website. It launches you to somebody else's website. It launches you to go do something. It launches you to go buy something. It launches you to have a conversation. It launches you to think about something that has to do with the quarry and culture of fly fishing. So that's what today is going to be about. But it's going to be specifically about a few things that I have gathered in these last seven years that may be unique to being kind of one foot in the industry side of things and just one foot in the general community side of things that if you are simply consuming uh, podcasts and fly fishing stuff uh, that you might not experience, or it might be something that you have experienced that is just reinforcing that to you. So I wanted to share a few things that I have gained in these last seven years that may be of benefit to you. And the first one is what I wanted to lead with, uh, and that is the people. People are fantastic. I have to say that in fly fishing and through fly fishing, I interact with a wider diversity uh, of people and not just like the, the major demographics you think of when you think of diversity, but I'm thinking of in, in epistemological terms. I'm thinking of in worldview terms. I'm thinking in the way that people come at 
the world. Uh, if, if I were to do a fly tying night uh, here in, in um, the, the North Shore of Massachusetts, and I had six people show up, they would be six of the most different people imaginable. And I can say this because in fly tying nights that I've hosted, fly tying nights I've attended, uh, you run into that very thing. And everyone's talking about how they tie a woolly bugger or a clouser or a flat wing or something like that. But all six people are dressed differently. All six people are different ages. All six people come from different backgrounds. All six people might have different ways that they vote and think about things, but they all come together around a one-aught stainless steel hook, dumbbell eyes, and either, you know, real or synthetic deer hair. And that's that's the truth. Now, there may be parts of the country, and there, I, I think you could probably say it about northern New England, where you run into a great uh, you know, kind of conformity of people. You see a lot of unity uh, across the board or some, um, you know, homogenized uh, demographics. But my experience, everywhere I've lived, everywhere I've been involved in the fly fishing community, uh, here in, in New England, in Virginia, in Pennsylvania, and even in South Carolina, a certain degree, it provides a great cross section of the community. Are there certain demographics that aren't represented? Yeah. But I don't think you need to uh, artificially uh, insert people in or, or create some sort of uh, kind of affirmative action for fly fishing to, to make it what it is. I don't think you should be, there should be any barriers, and I don't think there are any barriers, at least ones that are are um, systemic, I should say. I think there's, there's barriers just because some people don't want to, and it is kind of expensive, and it's not the easiest thing to access. But you get hooked up with a Toronto Limited group, you get hooked up with a fly tying group, and you're going to find people that want to help you get involved, no matter who you are and where you come from. I am confident when I say that. So I've come to appreciate that diversity in a new way. As I interact with people through the podcast, I interact with people through the website, I interact with people at events, I interact with people at local and uh, at, at national events, people who do know the podcast, and people who don't know the podcast, uh, being able to help some of my friends who are in the fly fishing industry with uh, selling their stuff and with showing off their products and highlighting their projects to be to have people that are coming to me for that kind of input in, in coming from all different backgrounds. It's a really interesting uh, place to be in where I'm not trying to sell something, but I am effectively selling something. And I'm hearing all these different stories from all these different people who all they want to do is catch fish and they want to know if this product is going to help them do it. And some people have disposable income out the wazoo and they want to know if this is the next purchase that is worth their time, energy, and effort. And can I give enough a good enough sales pitch or can I represent this person's sales pitch well enough? And then you have other people who have a very limited income and they can only get one thing. So they want to know, is this the thing that is worth their money? And they want to hear the same thing. And so it's just really, really interesting in that context for me to understand the diversity that we see in fly fishing. I've really come to appreciate it. And just some 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 dear people uh, that I've come to really appreciate and enjoy the company of because of kind of having my foot in in this context. And then uh, if we go into that narrower uh, group of people, that smaller circle within that fly fishing community, the fly fishing industry, I would echo that sentiment also. Now, I don't know if these things still exist because I haven't been online or on social media, I should say. I've been online quite a bit, but I haven't been on social media a lot, especially Instagram. But those fly fishing meme accounts, um, they're, they, they present stereotypes, right? And one of those stereotypes is that the fly fishing industry person is uh, you know, only out to make money and trying to fool you into buying something flashy or, or marginally updated, uh, but then adding a bunch of money uh, onto the price tag. Now, does that exist? It does exist. But I would have to say, 
that by and large, you know, the events that I go to, the people I hang out with, the people I talk with for the podcast uh, that are in that fly fishing industry, big name folks and folks of the smallest little brands you've probably never heard of, they're more often than not, they are good people. Um, and again, this is, this is certainly not saying anything about me, but when I go to like fly fishing shows or when I go to events and there's the, you know, pre-event party or the post-event function, and I sit down at a table with whether it's people I've never met before, or it's people that are all over YouTube that are all over the back of books, giving recommendations that are the first names that you think of when you think of fly fishing characters or celebrities, whatever you want to say to a man or woman, they are happy to have a conversation. Some of them knew who I am. Some of them don't know who I am, but they're happy to have a conversation, find out what I do, find out what Casting Cross is about. They may never go to the website. They never may never listen to a podcast, but I've never had anybody who has acted too good for me or for anybody that I have been with. Now, can there be anecdotal evidence that says otherwise? Of course, but and, and I'm very willing to admit that because that happens in every realm of existence where there's going to be a couple of bad apples. But my experience, by and large, has been very good. So let that give you some hope. Let that give you some encouragement. Here's one more kind of example of that. Um, I have uh, on my saved voicemail only four messages. One is a happy birthday greeting from some people that were teenagers that are now young adults, and I like to bring out now and again to embarrass them. I think they intended to embarrass me by singing a happy birthday to me like 10 years ago, uh, but now I have brought it out and showed them the last few years and have embarrassed them with it. But the other three voicemails are from people in the fly fishing industry, and I'm not sure why. Uh, they all three of them went to voicemail. I'm sure I've fielded these phone calls and I just have forgotten about them because they are not in front of me on my phone as it has, you know, all the data has gone from one phone to the next one to the next phone. But these are three messages from people in the fly fishing industry, uh, one in a pretty large fly fishing company, one in a smaller fly fishing company, and one in a pretty well-known nonprofit that have just called to say, thanks for what you're doing. Uh, keep up the good work. Uh, I appreciate what you wrote. I appreciate what you said. And I'm not saying this to say that I did something great because honestly, I don't think it was particularly meaningful. But the fact that these people went out of their way, that they read what I said, they listened to what I said, and they reached out. I think that just goes to show, again, it's a small sample size, but it goes to show how we've got people who are truly interested in fly fishing and that entire community. They're not just these capitalist caricatures trying to make a buck. They are uh, not just trying to get over on Joe Fly Fisher. They are trying to contribute in some way, shape, or form and make a living on it, but also be a part of something that's a little bit greater than themselves. And the three voice messages prove something? No, but I think they indicate that uh, things are not as dour, again, as the memes might make them seem, or as those uh, that, that wasteland that is, you know, the Facebook comments uh, under articles and things that might might lead you to believe things are as bad as they are. So that's the people. Um, now the places, all right, the places that have had an impact on me over the last seven years, uh, things are going pretty well, environmentally speaking, like there is not a lot of places that are fishing significantly worse than they were a decade ago. Again, there could be some significant anecdotal evidence, but more often than not, what we're seeing is stream improvement. Habitat restoration, 
we're seeing populations rebound of fish. We're seeing the reestablishment of native strains and fish populations uh, to kind of go along with habitat restoration. We're seeing dam removal. We're seeing mitigation of pollution. And we're seeing these things done in a way that isn't like pulling teeth. I would have to say that across the aisle, uh, we are seeing a lot of contributions from both major political parties, uh, especially at the local level, when it comes to restoring cold water resources. And I think we have to say that. We, we have to acknowledge that. Hey, do we have a long way to go? Absolutely. Again, I live in New England. This place was uh, first, you know, raised for uh, farmland, and then it was, uh, you know, cut down for timber, and then it was channelized for industrialization. So, are there rivers that I could be fishing in, uh, you know, within a stone throw of my house if I rewound three hundred years? Yeah. Absolutely. And so right now they've got, you know, suckers and, and maybe a couple of sunfish in them. So the trout aren't here now, but there's a lot of places that 10 years ago were in much worse situations than they are now. 20 years ago, 50 years ago, absolutely that's the case. And again, maybe I'm thinking a small sample size, but more often than not, outside of the great, you know, droughts or the dams that break or the chemical spills that happen, which are not good, and I'm not passing those things over, we have seen a lot of good happen. And as I have kind of kept my finger on the pulse, not in some sort of great um, empirical manner where I am tracking the data, but just looking at the nature of the information that's coming out, there are so many success stories. And again, I, I am not in the uh, mood to discuss climate change one way or another, but I just want to make sure that we understand that there are a lot of good things happening in spite of what could be uh, perceived as cataclysmic things on the horizon. Uh, there are a lot of good things that are happening, and we have to keep those in mind. We have to see the trees as well as the forest. And so I would just remind you that not everything is doom and gloom, that there's a lot of good stuff. Uh, everyone I talk to who is over you know, 50 or over 70 is saying that I'm catching fish in places that I never caught fish when I was a kid. And it's awesome to hear that story. It's even better when you realize that there's enough of those stories that are happening that they probably should be making the news. If not the the mainstream news, then the fly fishing news. And it is there. It's always tinged with, and we can do better. Um, but you know, we, we don't need to live with that kind of guilt. We should, we should pat ourselves on the back for what we're doing, but that patch should also propel us to do the next thing. So Again, I'm not making some definitive statement on the global or the national or even a regional scene, but I just am of the conviction that we need to remember that we're doing a lot right after doing a lot wrong for a number of, of centuries and decades. And so we need to acknowledge that what, what groups like Trout Unlimited uh, did and what the Department of Environmental Protection and uh, all these other both local and uh, national organizations and, um, and agencies have done has done a lot of good. And we are reaping the benefits of that now. And it didn't require significant changes to people's lives. It required a lot of grassroots work. And this is where I would say, if you want to make your places better, make your places better. Go out and do it. Volunteer to be boots on the ground, boots in the stream, as it were. Um, and, you know, loan out your chainsaw, uh, loan out your elbow grease, and go make something happen because that is going to make a much greater impact than whining on social media.
So winding on social media has made the first and the second uh, part of the program. The first and second uh, um, uh, segments have concluded with winding on social media is not the answer. You think the third one will do that too? Let's see. So we talked about people, talked about places. And then lastly, over the last seven years, what I have noticed about the things that go into the pursuit of fish. So I like fly fishing gear. I think that that's very evident based upon uh, the nature of casting across. Um, but what I've also noticed is that I like what I've liked. There is not a lot of new gear that has supplanted my old gear. Um, I'm using a lot of the same gear that I used seven years ago. Every once in a while, a rod will make its way into my rotation. I got a new eight weight last year, or excuse me, a new nine weight last year. It supplanted my old eight weight. Uh, but I still am using the same five weight I've been using for like 15 or 17 years. I'm still using the same six weight I've been using for 20 years. And if it breaks and it snaps, Sage, you better do something just good. Otherwise my heart's going to break, uh, along with my fly rod. Um, but I'm still using the same core gear. Um, and this is the interesting thing that I'm still not sure of yet. Is it because that is truly better or is it because I learned with those things 20 years ago, 15 years ago, and I became accustomed to it. Is it that that Sage VPS2 is the rod that shaped my casting stroke? Um, or is it that it truly is a great casting rod? I think it could be a little bit of both. Is it that that um, Orvis uh, T3 uh, is the, the, the rod that I know exactly how to move in any situation to get my cast exactly where I want it? Or is it that that's a rod that can do that for anybody? I would say that is probably a little bit of both. Now, there's a couple other pieces of gear that have that have entered into my repertoire. My Douglas Upstream uh, two weight is it's my go-to high mountain stream rod. Uh, my Reddington Butterstick four weight is a relatively new thing, like last year, but it is one of my favorite like medium-sized stream rods. Um, I have turned to my Reddington, uh, behemoth reels more often than not when it comes to smallmouth fishing or large river trout fishing. And those are things that I've, I've started using in the last five or seven years. I've switched over to a lot of real lines and I've really come to appreciate those in the last seven years, but I, you know, still stick with my, uh, Orvis, uh, super strong uh, tippet material. This it, they, they've updated their formulations of it, but it's the tippet material I've been using for you know 20, 25 years. I'm not using the same spools that I used 25 years ago, but I'm using the same brand. And so it's interesting, uh, the things that change and the things that stay the same. It's probably a little bit of both categories. So as promised, social media whining. You know, if, if you like using new stuff, use new stuff. If you like using old stuff, use old stuff. Both are perfectly fine options. Anyway, that takes us to the 20 minute mark. I could talk for a long time about the last seven years. I could talk about the highs. I could talk about the lows. I could talk about my favorite experiences using the website, favorite experiences on the podcast and places where I was like, that was absolutely terrible work. Um, but again, my intention for the website, for the podcast is that you will hear something and that you will do something with it. You won't stop with what I say, but you will take what I say and you will move the ball down the field. You will move the fly up the stream. You will, you will, you will make it your own. You will chew the meat and spit out the bones. If there's, I say something ridiculous or redundant that you get rid of that, you take what is valuable and you do something with it. This is for you. That's the point of the casting across fly fishing podcast. That is the point of casting across period. It is about the quarry, the fish, and the culture 
us of fly fishing. And that's why I talk and that's why I write. And I am very appreciative that you're a part of it. I mean, the fact that if you listened to me for the last 22 minutes today, I mean, that means something. But if you've been listening to me for the last seven years, I mean, that that means a whole lot. And I really do appreciate it. I appreciate all the comments on the website, comments on social media, all the emails at matthewcastingacross.com, all the ratings and reviews on iTunes, all of that stuff, it, it means a lot. And so I do truly appreciate it. So thank you. This week on castingacross.com. Seven years of casting across. So I write about seven years. So I talked about seven years. This is an article about seven years, totally different. Uh, and there's links to some of the uh, greatest hits, as it were, based on your uh, clicks. So greatest hits based on your clicks, seven years of casting across. Then Wednesday's article is called The Gift Guides. They're coming. So I don't know if you've gotten them yet. But there are fly fishing emails that are being sent by stores, by manufacturers, by websites about what you need to be buying this holiday season. And some of them are absolutely fantastic. And some of them are absolutely laughable. And I will let you be the judge. So I give you a couple of ways to think about these websites uh, as you you get these emails and think about these gift guides as you get these emails in uh, the gift guides. They're coming or they're coming the gift guides, one of the two, which is on Wednesday. This week's recommendation on the podcast is not a fly fishing specific piece of gear. It is Cabela's Waterfowl Gore-Tex Shooter Gloves for Men. Cabela's Waterfowl Gore-Tex Shooter Gloves for Men. They retail at a sweet $59.99, so that's not a cheap pair of gloves. But I don't like wearing gloves. For whatever reason, I don't like the fact that I don't have a lot of dexterity while I'm while I'm wearing them. But these are great. They are waterproof. They are they have a lot of sensitivity and grip on your thumb and forefinger. I shoot with these gloves on when I am am hunting the ducks, uh, and I am able to paddle with them. And my hands aren't going to get wet. They have a good cuff that goes over my my wrist and then over my jacket, so it keeps water out of my sleeves. Uh, but these are gloves that I have not fly fished in, but I think these would be definitely serviceable gloves for something like steelheading or something like that, where you're doing a lot of drifting. If you're doing high stick nymphing, uh, you don't need a lot of, of play with your fingers. Um, this would be a great pair of gloves. They're comfortable. Uh, Price-wise, they're probably in the medium price range for a pair of Gore-Tex gloves. They come in a couple of camo patterns, but I've been very happy with them this season. I'm looking forward to using them in even colder weather. Uh, they are not the warmest gloves in the world, but they are warm enough for uh, active uh, activities. So this wouldn't be like my tree stand glove. And again, it would certainly wouldn't be my trout fishing glove, but for kind of moderate motion activities, this is a great option. So I'll put a link to the Cabela's Waterfowl Gore-Tex Shooter Gloves for Men on this week's podcast show notes on castingacross.com. Thanks for listening to the Casting Across Fly Fishing Podcast. Please subscribe in your favorite podcast app and then rate the podcast on iTunes. Then head over to castingacross.com for three posts a week on the people, places, and things that go into the pursuit of fish. Thank you.